0: Let's pray together. Father, as we have, we ask for grace that we don't deserve. We ask that you would help us to focus on you. We ask that you would lift our eyes, Lord, from the other things that seem alluring or captivating. We ask that you would do something spiritual that we can't create, Father, as we turn our eyes to some of the needs in our church, we're aware of the ways that you continue to work in us. Lord, you've created a unity in our church that we can't manufacture. And yet you've said that things can threaten it. And so we pray that you would continue to protect us as a church. Lord, we pray that when our impulse is to hold a grudge, when our impulse is to slander and to tear down those who are weaker or more vulnerable than we are, when our impulse is to judge, we pray that you would send your spirit to help us because what you've created by your blood is worth protecting and we're grateful that you are protecting it and we pray that you would help us. Lord, help us to use our tongues, our energies and our prayers to preserve that unity. Help us to make every effort to that end. Father, we also pray for those in our church that are weak, that are struggling, that are hurt. As we remembered back over this last year, Father, we're so grateful for everything that you've done and from what you have protected us from. It's because of your ability that we ask that you'd continue to do it, Lord. We pray that you'd help those that have been weakened, that are sick, that are struggling. Lord, we pray for those whose minds don't feel peaceful. Lord, we pray for those that have either temporary ailments and those that have been dealing with things for a long time. Father, you know that the ones we're praying for want to serve you. But right now their cupboards are bare. And so we're asking, Lord, would you rise up And provide what they need. Provide the strength and the healing that they need. Provide the stability and the peace that they need. And Father, I pray for us now. With the kids out and in some ways our hearts with them. Father, I pray that you would help us to realize the significance of every moment that comes when we open your word. You've directed us over these last two weeks Be careful about the way that we listen to make sure that we're doing more than just ranking ourselves by the integrity of what we listen to. Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear in such a way that your word would settle deeply into our hearts. And Father, then I pray that the way that light is inside a lamp, the way that seeds are inside the earth, you would do something profound that we couldn't create simply because we've received your word. That's all we want to do, is to hear you and by the power of your spirit to bear fruit. So I pray, Lord, would you help us now? We want to be a fruitful people. So we're eager for what you're going to do through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm not sure if you guys have remembered it, but context, as preachers always say, matters. And the one little bit of context I want you to remember from these last two sermons is that Jesus has been in a boat. I'm not sure if you remember that, but when we started into the parables again in Mark chapter 4, the very beginning, Jesus got in a boat. People were out there. And so our story here that Sarah began to read for us continues in a boat. But the context of God on the water is not really unique to just Mark 4. It really relates all the way back to the passage that Judy read for us. The text that Judy read says that there are a number of reasons that people should praise God. And she skipped a few verses in there because I asked her to. But that opening segue that there are a number of reasons we can be grateful for God's steadfast love, it highlighted a few different people at a few different phases of life. And some of them were the people that were on a boat that were in trouble and how they called out to the Lord and the Lord delivered them. But that's not the only time that God's ever worked on seas or on storms. In fact, in the very beginning of the Bible, it says that what was going on when God created everything is that there was dark chaos over the surface of the over the surface of the earth. Things were without form, things were kind of void like. And God's spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters. If you go all the way to the end of the Bible, And you see God seated on a throne, John beholding him. Before that throne, it says the waters before him are still like a sea of glass. It's a wonderful picture of what God does through the entire story of the Bible. He takes that which is chaotic. He takes that which is tumultuous and dangerous. And because of his great power, he settles and stills it. Now, if we could meet and see a God like that, how would we respond? I like to think that if I were aware of Jesus' power, if I were to encounter God with all of his capability, that I would run to him and I would be amazed by him and I would just want to spend more time with him. And if you feel kind of the same way that I do, I want to let you know I doubt we're right Because the two things that happen, this is sort of just so you're aware, we've already done a lot today, so your sermon today only has two points. But it has a few questions. And the questions ask us to join the people in these stories and to recognize just how similar they probably are to us. See, the two points, if you look at your bulletin, Are that Jesus is going to still a storm. That's the text that Sarah read. And in response people fear. And the second thing we're going to look at. Comes right after it. This isn't what Sarah read. She was grateful I didn't ask her to read about all the pigs. And everything like that. But Jesus will silence a spirit. And people will flee. You see. Unlike what I think our impulse is, is God, show me your power and I'll want to get closer to you. What I want us to be very aware of is that if God were to show us his raw power, we would respond much like my dog did last night during the thunderstorm. I have a headstrong dog. I have a dog who recognizes my authority with a turn of his tail and a sway of his hips. When I say, Dawson, come on inside. And he's like, no. Because <laughs> he's a strong dog. He's an independent dog. He doesn't need me until he's hungry and he needs me. Or until a thunderstorm hits. Because we all noticed a great change in Dawson last night. I'm not sure exactly how you guys experienced that storm, but for where we were in Olmstead Falls, there was a little bit of rain coming down. All of a sudden, there was a flash of lightning, and we all just kind of said, whoa. And, you know, internally, you start counting just to know, like, how far is this thing away from me? And I always try to count a lot faster in my mind because I just want to be 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,005. Oh, good, it's five miles away. Okay, (sighs) we're all right. This one was, you know, it was a It was a a flash, and that didn't seem to bother Dawson. But then when the steady rumble of the thunder started to just kind of make its presence known, Dawson turned from, I don't need you, dog, to, hey, where's your leg? Because I'd really like to be right next to it. (laughs) My independent dog started to get very scared of what was going on. And I have to admit, Rather than me being like that version of me that I want to invent in my head, God, show me your power and I'll run to you. I think I'm more like these people, and I think I'm more like my dog. I think power terrifies us if we really think about it. And so, what we get are sadly two very different responses. And we're going to look at both of these scenes through a series of questions in your bullet, and They're kind of laid out for you as well. The questions that we heard that Sarah read for us are these. Teacher, do you not care? Why are you so afraid? And who then is this? Listen to scene one again. And we'll, we'll make our way through. Starting in verse 35, Mark chapter 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, this is everybody he'd been teaching, right? Everybody he said, listen about how you listen. Pay attention to how you hear. Because these parables, things that I'll explain to my disciples, but that'll hide the truth from those who are skeptics. As he's unpacked all of them at the end, he said, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with them. so there's the context. Teaching's over, church is done, they're going back home, but taking a boat. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, which if it doesn't make any sense to you, come by our house sometime today around 1 o'clock, and you will witness Darren in a s- sort of decreasing state of awareness. Bob, I think, was a part of this early on, and I didn't realize the power of a good after-nap, or after-sermon nap, but there was a day where we were having a birthday party for Josiah and Jace. This was uh, early in uh, in September, so it was kind of early in my time, and um, and I was excited about this, so we had been doing some things on Saturday to get ready for this birthday party that was going to be after church on Sunday, and so uh, we, we, we got everything ready. I was a l- up a little bit late, and then I had a few things to do on Sunday morning, and when we got done, everybody came back to our place, and we had a birthday party for Josiah and Jace. I'm sure you remember it because of all the work that I put into it, right? Everybody came over to our house in North Ridgeville, and I had a couple things to do for this birthday party, and so I got my stuff done, and ah, a couple of the guys were sitting over in the living room, and I think, Bob, maybe you were with us. Well, I'm just going to pretend you were since you're right here. Let's just, let's just go with that. It's just the power of the preacher to create reality. And so Bob and I are sitting in this room, or the stand-in that Bob is for whoever this really was, and I sat down in a chair and I said, how are you doing? And apparently he started talking, looked away, and five seconds later when he looked back at me, I was sound asleep. That's what happens when you preach. You get tired. Brad could attest to this, I'm sure. Brian could attest to this, I'm sure. If not, just not along with me because I need some. Yes, very good. So Jesus is here. Post-sermon slumber. In the boat. He's tired. And the first question arises. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? Drama queens. Until you, as I'm probably sure you have been told in the past, recognize that the Sea of Galilee can be a very treacherous place. Storms can arise quickly, and in arising quickly, much like if I were to take this, and I'm sure this isn't going to work very well for us, but... Right? Why does that work? Because somehow, water going over top of, or air going over top of something that sort of has a little bit of a bowl-like shape to it with water at the bottom, it creates some pretty intriguing dynamics. It can sound like music if you're working with a bottle. But in the Sea of Galilee, where there are mountains all around, when wind whips across, it stirs up the water something fierce. And seasoned fishermen are not drama queens. And so the danger's real. See, I think we can be really dismissive of these guys if you take the approach that I just took. Oh, what's wrong with you guys? I know how the story ends. What's your problem? Well, if that were the reality, we'd never have any problems, would we? I just broke it, Bill. How will this end? I don't know. Okay, I fixed it. How amazing am I? Thank you, Mike. Guys, danger is real. And if we want to rush past this first question and dismiss it and say that when these guys feel a threat on their life, we know what they should do. We want to jump to Jesus' second question. What's wrong with you? Well, we're not really going to be able to benefit if we don't realize just how much life can be scary for us, can't it? Pandemics can be scary. Or if you look back on the pandemic and you wonder what's wrong with all these other people who were afraid, the weakness of everyone around you can be scary. How quickly somebody can churn up trauma and, and unsettledness inside of you, that can be scary. So the truth is, despite the settings, we've all got something that makes us feel incredibly vulnerable. And when we do, that sense that we are in peril and then the corresponding sense that God doesn't care is right there at our heels this first question makes sense if we join the disciples doesn't it when you're scared and you feel alone it's easy to accuse God like this that's exactly what the disciples are doing Jesus is asleep and therefore he doesn't care But that's not exactly the way the story ends, is it? Instead, he wakes up. Verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Which seems like a really horrible question, a basic question. A did you not see the waves kind of question? But he interprets his own question to say, have you still no faith? In other words, Jesus says that when we are afraid, we should trust. Jesus says that in one sense, though it feels a little cliche, the antidote to fear is faith. But not faith the way that it's used on Pinterest. Have faith, brother. Have faith, sister. Have faith in what? Faith always has an object. And Jesus is very aware that they got the object right. Jesus. They're talking to him. What they were lacking is faith. Our society has done an odd thing, and it's to replace those. Our society today says we ought to have faith. But it's taken Jesus out of the equation altogether. So if you listen to any Disney movie, what are you supposed to have faith in? The inherent goodness inside of you? maybe something along those lines? the, the decency of humanity, the, the inner voice that you've got, something along those I mean that's every Disney movie, right? The answer is to be found inside you, not outside you. I find that to be terrifying. If every storm needs to be stilled by me, well, then I'm in great danger. The disciples, the experts of the sea, know very much that they're perishing. They know that they need to look outside of themselves, and they know that they ought to have an object of some sort, but what they do is they take that object and they accuse him. And oddly enough, if you listen to the narrative of our day, even the atheists and the agnostics do that. Even in the conversations about how God may not be real or God may not be reliable, what they want to say is that God is lesser and he's worthy of accusation. Look at the Old Testament record. Of course, we would blame God for something. You see, society will do everything but to trust Jesus. We'll blame Jesus if he has to be in the equation. Or we'll question Jesus if he has to be in the equation. Or we'll slander Jesus if he has to be in the equation. Or if we actually have to trust, if we actually have to have faith, we'll find anything else to put our faith in. The biblical record is exactly what Jesus is asking. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Brackets in me, since I'm the one you're talking to. So This is a question... These first two questions really kind of set us into the narrative. Do you not care? Have you no faith? But their response in verse 41 shows what I was saying in the beginning. After asking that question, their response is that they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, I find the word great in that translation to be really interesting. They were afraid of the sea. They were greatly afraid of Jesus. But what was interesting is that the word great shows up a second time, little, or first time before that, right? That's the second time that it showed up. Verse 39, it says, The wind ceased, and there was great calm. What should great calm in the lives of those who are in danger produce? Great gratitude? Great joy? Great worship? Yes only if we actually imitate what they recognize first. The one who can do this is not like us. See, the other thing that society wants to do is it wants to take everything divine and turn it into Marvel characters. Marvel characters are like us, but enhanced, right? Captain America, my favorite he was just a guy, a skinny little guy. What happened? Well, he took drugs, which is really a weird message. <laughs> Enhanced steroids, really, and became super powerful. Thor, even in so many ways, being from somewhere else, is like us, looks like us. He's kind of us, but plus, right? Us 2.0. You know what the disciples realize? This Jesus is not me 2.0, 3.0. He's not an upgrade of who I am. He is someone fundamentally different. I've been impressed by people I've never been scared like I am of this person right now. And I would suggest to us, if we're really going to sing the songs that we sing, if we're really going to ask the prayers that we ask, if we're really going to depend on Jesus and really trust him, we have to understand how much we ought to take the advice of Proverbs and realize that fear is the beginning of wisdom. Now, maybe not fear that looks exactly like this in the disciples. It's something that helps us to recognize if I'm seriously going to dedicate my children to the Lord. Then I'm dedicating them to one who is so different than me and can do things far outside of my understanding and my ability. They were filled, verse 41, with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. They're not just asking an obvious question. They're asking Old Testament kinds of questions. Because the Old Testament answer to their question is not one of us. It's him. Genesis 1-2 passage I quote in the beginning, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The salvation of Israel from the Egyptians. How did it happen? Exodus 15, 10. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty oceans. Job 38. Who shut in the sea with doors and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come no farther. What's the point God is making to Job? The same one Jesus is making to the disciples. You want to look at me and you want to complain? Let's just get one thing straight. Who do you think you're talking to? Who is it that you really think is on the other side of your prayer and your request? Job's been complaining for an entire book, and he comes to this moment, and God says, I'm not sure you know exactly who's on the other end of this dialogue, Job. Do do you have the ability to pet sea creatures? Do you have the ability to look into the heavens or just to look out onto the sea and realize I'm the one who shuts in the sea with doors? I'm the one who prescribes limits for it. I'm the one who sets bars and doors around it. I'm the one who says, yeah, that's far enough. Go stand at the beach, walk out into the water, play for a little while, turn around and find your blanket. You know what happened? You weren't in control of where you were standing. ever do that you're out there playing in the ocean you look around and you're like wait my towel used to be right there it's over there what happened i was just playing in two feet of water and it moved me 30 feet down the shore because i'm not in charge of the sea it's doing whatever it wants until it talks to god And the one who controls the seas is in the backdrop of the minds of the disciples, just like Psalm 107, which would have been one of their theme songs. He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, which he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Every Jew knew that Psalm 107 is about God, and God's sitting in my boat. I want to worship Jesus for the power that he exhibits in my life, but it has to start the place that this starts. And it's just, these are just two questions on the screen in your bulletin, something to think about. Why is God's power over the forces of nature so comforting to us? My first question. (laughs) It's because I'm just like Dawson, Right? I start feeling what's going on. I remember the first time I was in my friend's backyard and a wall of rain started moving towards us in the backyard and we were trying to outrun the simple wall of rain because that cloud was coming our way and we're booking it to get into his house. It was amazing. It was the first time I realized like, oh, rain doesn't fall everywhere at one time. It's literally coming from one spot and it was moving toward me. It was one of these moments that just like scared me. But it was nice to be inside the house. And when God calls himself a shelter and a refuge, there's something that we recognize. God's power over the forces of nature is a real comfort. But the corresponding question is then, why is God's power over the forces of nature so terrifying to us, even when we're helped by him? The disciples have a place to go in what they understand about Jesus But we have to recognize that when we make requests of God, we're not coming to a vending machine. We're not coming to a genie. We're not coming to one whom we command with the power of our words because it's his words that set limits over the power of nature. Jesus stills a storm and people fear. After what Sarah read comes the second scene. The boat makes its way to the other side. Jesus is awake. Everything is crazy quiet, and the disciples don't know what to say. And so they arrive, verse one, at the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, remember that word. I'm not sure if you guys remember this. Back a couple before we did other things, right? When we, in between mark the end of 3 and 4, immediately was the big word for mark. And again, think of this less chronologically and more like by way of significance. The significant of the moment is the way that Mark starts to describe the way people show up on the scene. And so something significant is about to happen. And so what happens? Immediately, there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Why? Verse 4, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces no one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones and if you're reading this right you ought to feel two things at the same time first aren't you glad you weren't there to meet this guy cuz he sounds scary he sounds Powerful. He sounds uncontainable. He sounds like someone with for whom there is no rival. And yet, at the same time, if you're also reading this, don't you feel horrible for this guy? At what point in his life did this start to happen? Presumably, we're talking about somebody who grew up. But a mom and a dad, maybe even a mom and a dad who dedicated him to the Lord. A kid with dreams and aspirations, a kid who grew up and wanted a future and a family. And we don't know what, but something happened to him. And so if you're reading verses 1 through 5, you're feeling two things at the same time, aren't we? Feeling great pity for this man who's bound and and obsessively consumed by a power inside him, this unclean spirit, verse 2, inside him that cannot be bound, that cannot be contained, wrenching, verse 4, chains apart, breaking shackles in pieces. This guy has no rival. And so this man has no friends, he has no family. He has no community because he's nothing but scary. And we're afraid of him and we're sad for him at the same time. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, and here's the first question of scene 2. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Why is he saying that? Because, Mark tells us, verse 8, Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. One of the things that perplexes me about the Gospels, and I don't think that by the time we get to the end of Mark, we'll have answered this question is why does Jesus heal people in different ways? There are moments that people have a problem and Jesus heals it. There are other demon-possessed folks that Jesus encounters and they are delivered. But here we have the record of something like a conversation. Verse 8, Jesus is saying to this man... Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So he's actually not addressing the man. He's addressing the spirit inside the man, possessing, working through the man. And the man is, is crying out, verse 7, with a loud voice. He's arguing. Now he addresses Jesus by the right tile. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And he makes his appeal, oddly enough, by the power of that same God. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. But he's asking, what is it you want with me? And so Jesus asks the second question. What is your name? And when you read passages, don't you sometimes wish you could hear it? I, I don't, possess the omniscience to be able to tell you exactly how this this dialogue went back and forth. I don't know exactly how this was, but one of my deep questions of verse 9 is, who's he talking to? Is he talking to the man and asks the man, hey, you, tell me your name. Brother, who are you? Or is he talking to the spirit because it's the spirit that replies, my name is Legion. My name is Army. My name is Division. I'm not one demonic soldier. There's many of us. (coughs) And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. The unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Legion was an appropriate name, wasn't it? 2,000 pigs motivated to their death because of 2,000 demons identifying with one voice, acting with one power inside a man plagued by those that are now freed from him, rushing down a steep bank into the sea, drowning in the sea, So the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. Third question I want to ask. Why does the strength of our spiritual foe often seem insurmountable to us? Luther said, the prince of darkness is grim, but we tremble not for him. And I say, now, sometimes I I tremble. Sometimes I get so angry that I'm aware, man, I'm being tempted right now, and I feel I feel a trembling. Sometimes I hear of one more thing that seems to be plaguing our church. I feel like the prophet crying out to God on behalf of a little nation. God, can we take one more thing? And I I tremble. I see the temptations that plague our church. I see the way at times the enemy is at work. And I have to admit, I can't sing Luther's song. The print of darkness just seems grim. And I'm trembling before him. 2,000 pigs die in a single rush of possessed suicide. And that was inside one dude. Guys, I know it's easy to try and read the Bible, which is an ancient book through modern eyes and to say these are all metaphors these are all parables these are all just ways that ignorant people talked about realities they can't understand and that's bunk this is a reality of what has been happening since the beginning of time Adam and Eve in a garden a garden with a serpent Who is there to oppose and accuse and deny? The story from the beginning has an adversary. We read in Ephesians, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against forces that seem organized against him and against us. And if we think that just happens in other countries, we're massively ignorant if we can't look and see that Jesus' name is only used as a curse word, if we can't look and see that God is only opposed and mocked, if we can't see that the foundational stuff, God set up his kingdom upon, truth, family, identities that make us who we are, that all of these things are being attacked. I think we're missing how this story from 2,000 years ago is still relevant today. Church, we're under attack. Which is why when we were trying to sum up Ephesians, I was saying the armor matters and not in insignificant ways. God offers to clothe clothe us with himself, which is why we can say the prince of darkness is grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And it's the word that, oddly enough, legion used. Jesus. Jesus, you're the one who delivers. Verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Jesus stills a storm, and his disciples are afraid. Jesus silences a spirit, and the crowds are afraid. People are asking, who does this kind of thing? And so those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, So they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Why? If you're looking at the situation and you realize that inside one man was something so destructive and he's now freed, if you're just thinking, sanely, you are got to be thinking this guy could be a great benefit to our region. What if you stayed? What other stuff did we not going, did we not know is going on and threatening us? God, what could be done through you here among us? That would seem sane unless you cared more about the pigs than you cared about the man. And when God showed up, and the herdsmen lost their livelihood, and the region lost their pork, they said, this is terrifying. And so they beg Jesus to depart from the region. Guys, that's how God saves. He saves and destroys and rebuilds. He saves and disrupts, While he calms. And so he calms the sea, but he looks at the disciples and says, you guys got a real problem when it comes to faith. Disruption while bringing peace. And he does the same thing here. And in the process, he exposes the hearts of everyone who's been watching and asks the question, do you care more about pigs or do you care more about this guy? Do you care more about your livelihood and your prosperity or do you care more about the freedom of one who's been bound up for so long? We have to ask the question because Jesus says, if you want to make it into heaven, some of you are going to go eyeless. Some of you are going to have to go handless. Because frankly, it's better to cut off one hand and go without that hand into the kingdom of heaven It's better to lose an eye and to make it into the kingdom of heaven half blind than it is to think that everything's okay while you're on your way to destruction. And Jesus asks us, Mark, the Spirit asks us, how is salvation that Jesus provides for us simultaneously so blatantly disruptive to us? Because the truth is, sometimes we ask Jesus to free us on our terms, and that's just not the way he works. Jesus frees according to his plans. So, verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But he did not permit him, but said to him, Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So what I love about the difference inside this guy is that he's probably got the most costly story to tell, if you think about it. Does Jesus ask the man formerly known as Demon, go take some seminary classes, get yourself cleaned up. I want you to learn about the Old Testament, go study Torah again, and then come out and be a mighty teacher for God. No. Does he tell him, I want you to think through the nature of who I am because I'm human, but clearly I'm not just human. What would be the balance of two natures in one man like this? Think about it, ponder it for a little while, and when you feel like you can explain it to other people, go away and tell them. Now, what should you tell them? I used to be a naked, half-crazy guy who could rip everything apart and nobody wanted to be around. I met one man and he changed everything. Who's the hero of that story? It's not the man formerly known as Legion, is it? See, if we're going to enter into this, then we're going to go through life talking not about us, but about him. But well, when we have to talk about him, we have to be able to get to a point of saying, you know, there have been times in my life that I, though a very strong sailor and rower and fisherman, have found myself just absolutely overwhelmed. And I'll tell you the story. I blamed Jesus for not caring about me. And Jesus both diagnosed my faith and settled my storm at the exact same moment. And I just want to tell you, this guy is unlike anybody I've ever met. And something about him terrifies me, and something about him draws me to him. And I don't know what to make of him, but I'm just here telling you about Jesus. I grew up just like you. I had dreams. And then all of a sudden, my life changed. And one demon after another, after another, suddenly there was so much going on inside of me. Nobody wanted to be around me. I was crazy. I was I was insane. I was ripping myself to pieces and tearing apart everything around me and, and then I met him and I'm wearing clothes for that reason and I'm a little safer for that reason. Church, you're going to leave here and you're going to go out into a world who <laughs> frankly just doesn't need to hear about you. They don't need to hear about everything you've done. Parents, you're going to you raise your kids, and you don't need to tell them the Thompson or the Brogan way. You tell them about the kingdom of God. And the hardest thing for me is to get out of the way of the story of Jesus when I'm talking to other people. Because frankly, I still kind of like to be the hero. I like to have it be about me. I like people coming away, thinking better of me. But if I take my place in this, I want to say, here's what I contribute to the story. Weakness and fear, chaos and insanity, and the peace and the power came from Jesus alone. I think you'd like to get to know him. He's pretty cool. He's pretty powerful. He's pretty amazing. And to me, that's what it would mean to respond to God's power in utter humility. So church, be like the guy formerly known as Legion. Be like the disciples whose understanding of Jesus needed to be completely blown apart so they could worship him the right way. We're only in chapter five. We've got so much more to learn about who he is. But he's done enough in your life that you could tell other people about him now. So let's pray to that end so that this power that comforts and that terrifies us can be stuff that we share with others. Father, I pray that you would never be boring to us, that we would never be more impressive in our own minds than you are. Lord, help us to tell our stories rightly taking up our place as those who are terrified and terrifying who just met someone far more powerful, far more perplexing, but far more worthy of our attention and our worship. And then, Lord, make us a community that together magnifies and worships Jesus Christ above all things. Help us to raise our kids to that end. Help us to build this community to that end. Help us to center our friendships and our time and our attention to that end. Lord, let us spend and be spent to make much of Jesus.